1: programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. I am Diane Kennedy along with my co-host, Rebecca Banks. Rebecca, how are you tonight? I'm
2: well, Diane. How are you,
1: Wonderful. We are both so very excited about our interview this evening. We have a very special guest. Her name is Martha Burge, and uh, Martha is an author, a parent, and a certified personal professional coach. And we'd like to tell you a little bit about Martha before we get started on the interview and exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, We're talking about twice-exceptional children, of course, and adults, intensity, giftedness, and the ADD myth. That's Martha's brand-new book. And Martha specializes in gifted and creative people, including adults diagnosed with ADHD and parents of children with ADHD and related conditions. Her new book, The ADD Myth, How to Cultivate the Gift, of Intense Personalities with a foreword by Dr. Alan Francis addresses the misunderstandings about ADHD and how to harness the full potential of intensity with maximum success. Anyone involved with 2E children and their families will find this interview uplifting and helpful. As I mentioned, Martha is a certified personal coach, and uh, she specializes in gifted and creative people, and over the years, she simply refused um, to agree that her children uh, were disordered because she's also a parent. And so Martha joins us tonight, and let's just get right to the interview. Martha, how are you?
0: I'm fine tonight. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: We are so excited to have you, and especially I'd like to point out, as we have had a few discussions ourselves with, um, we take a very similar stance on a couple of issues that um, those of our listeners that have tuned in to some of our programs this summer have found out, uh, and that is about ADHD and many of the controversies that surround it, as well as the DSM and how we feel that um, the DSM is uh, a main reason why many of our children are stuck. And until we understand that, it gets a little difficult to know how to help them. So as we get started this evening, let's just start the same way that your book opens, with a very bold and controversial chapter called There's No Such Thing as ADHD. And we also have a similar chapter um, in Bright Not Broken. The title of ours is Fact or Fallacy? Questioning the validity of the ADHD diagnosis. So for our listeners tonight, Martha, will you explain um in your words what this means and why it is so important? I'd
0: be happy to.
1: I think for the the first part of
0: it is that in order to diagnose ADHD there is really no objective method. What they use is a series of behavioral criteria. So the entire thing is behavior-based, which means that it's subject to interpretation. So it's based on this child does this too much, and anytime you have too much, then there's there's some room for interpretation in there.
1: Right. It
0: also doesn't have any room for accounting for alternate explanations. So it's it's very very limited, and it doesn't even cover, well, these very, very same behaviors are very often seen in gifted children. So it just goes straight to presuming this is a disorder. But we know from all of the research that's been done that there are no physical differences in the brain. There's nothing tremendously different about these kids. They, however, function differently but it just presumes immediately that difference is disorder, and I beg to differ. So my point in this is if this explanation that you find in the DSM doesn't completely explain yourself or your child, then be open to other explanations, and if they fit better, then you need to use those.
1: Well, we couldn't agree more, especially when you talk about and of course, that's what led us to write our book about bright not broken, and that putting your best foot forward, so to speak, that we you're so right about a d h d limiting that diagnosis and um and keeping you from a lot of times you know our children's challenges are um, they're exacerbated because they feel so defeated because they don't recognize who they are. We feel frustrated as parents. And, you know, if we're a grown adult who suffered this as a child but yet never really got an understanding of something that we may do exceptionally well, just very different. And um, so with that, we totally agree about being trapped by an ADHD diagnosis. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rebecca. It's your turn.
2: (laughs) No, I was just thinking, too, though, at the same time, these labels that that, um, are so easily and readily assigned because they're so pervasive in our culture hide the fact that the behaviors that are diagnosed as disordered are quite frequently behaviors that are, quote, normal behaviors for people who are gifted, who are intense. And um, that's part of the flaw with the DSM, as Martha said. I agree wholeheartedly. It doesn't leave room for any variation except for those symptoms. And, you know, we've spoken in past radio shows, Martha, about how the DSM is structured to split um, just distinct symptom sets, such as hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention, give it a name and separate it from the broader um the broader syndromes that that typically some of these symptoms are associated with, if we're looking at disorders, or some of the the um, other personality characteristics and intellectual characteristics that they could also be associated with. And you know, we concur the whole behavioral approach is is very flawed, as well as the fact that um, we have a system that doesn't have any biology that underlines it really. You mentioned these brains are not different. The imaging hasn't proven it. And then we get the medications thrown at them as well. So we you know and you do a wonderful job in your book about the medication. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But do you mind sharing with our listeners the importance of understanding how being stuck with a label like ADHD can contribute to um to misdiagnosis and, and the overtreatment that would include dangerous medications?
0: Yes, you know, and it's not just an ADHD diagnosis. No. This, this underlying difference in people who are often misdiagnosed with ADHD is also responsible for a lot of different types of misdiagnosis: sensory processing disorder, anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. bipolar, ODD. And the list just goes on, and it's it's this limited view. Dr. Amon actually has on his website that when he has someone that comes in and receives a diagnosis of ADHD, mm-hmm. most of them, he says most, have three other disorders. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, how can that even be possible? And I think that they're they're not looking at the whole person, and that's a part of the damage that's done with this when they say, okay, here's who you are, you're this diagnosis, and we're going to call this ADHD, and here are all of your challenges, and here are all the things you're not able to do, it right away puts all of that person's focus on all of the things that are perceived as limitations within this culture. So they're going to look immediately at, well, what kind of medications can we, can we give you, or what kind of medications can we give this child to, to make them back into normal again? And it just misses the boat. For one thing, the medications are incredibly dangerous, and they're sometimes done for the wrong reason. And the other thing is, if you're looking just at that limited view, you're missing the larger view. So there's a little bit larger view if you start looking at the gifted Diagnosis. Okay, we'll call it that. If you say, well, what if this child is not ADHD? What if they're gifted and they have these same things? And and that's another part of it. But I contend that there's a much larger look at the whole person, so that that person then understands instead of I'm limited in this capacity and this one and this one and here's where I'm broken and wrong. They understand this kind of person that I am is different in these respects. So it's not just their ability to organize or their hyperactivity. It's, it's across a spectrum that includes emotional differences, creative differences, intellectual differences, and the way they take in information, their sensual differences. And if you miss that whole picture It's really easy to think this person has three or four different kinds of disorders instead of I'm a whole person who has all of these differences, which are, by the way, completely normal. I know that might have been a little bit um, (laughs) provocative to say that this is normal.
2: But but if if you're that type of a person who has these... Intensities as Dr. Silverman, we spoke with her earlier this year and um, right before the Dabrowski conference, and you have these intensities, it's actually freeing to understand that this is normal for you. And I think that that's something that, that the gifted community um, so often when we carry the diagnosis in with the gifts and the focus is on the negative, the richness. Of the gifted experience and of of living with intensities is lost, and we perceive overexcitabilities and intensities as is making us odd or strange, rather than seeing this as normal for someone who is gifted. And we lose, uh, we do lose the focus on the rich experience of life that individuals who are gifted can have in, in, in cultivating those in our children.
0: And I think that's a really important point, that if we don't understand this underlying difference that we have, we lose that opportunity to cultivate it. If our children, if, if we knew, if we had like some magical society where this kind of difference was understood and nurtured we would actually be teaching different things in school. Our schools
2: would be made up differently. (laughs)
0: I'm laughing as a teacher. (laughs) I agree
2: completely. I'm I'm talking to my students today about it. In fact, um, I played a little clip from Pink Floyd's The Wall, and we talked about how education teaches the same thing to everyone at different levels. Um, but they're all learning the same thing, and how as individuals a true education would meet them exactly at their areas of interest, at their areas of strength, at their areas of ability. And and then one of my kids goes, wow, everything would be so different, and that's the way it <laughs> should be. So anyhow, I just had to laugh because I had a conversation with a 10th grader about that today. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so
0: your tenth grader agrees,
1: <laughs> yes, exactly well, ladies um gosh we're I think we're all just such kindred spirits here in our thoughts about making sure that um that these intensities are understood and not um disordered, if you will, as so many of us have suffered through our children and and through um, so much of this confusion that happens with the DSM, and I know, as we mentioned, we've um, you know we've taken a pretty strong stand on the DSM being a flawed diagnostic manual. And oftentimes people will say to us, "Well, why is that important to me? Just give me ten tips on how to help my kid." And we tell them, "But that you're really going to run back in the same circle if you don't understand that being trapped sometimes in these labels and uh, and the you know, the importance of the DSM that gives us the services or maybe the educational supports we need in school, um, they all are stemmed and based out of this manual, that while we need some kind of regulatory um Piece that will help us and guide us at the same time. As Dr. Francis points out in in his work, and I know um, in your talks with him, that this system may have outlived its usefulness. And if we're not careful about um, how we go forward with these changes, we could end up in an even worse controversial mess than we're in right now. And one thing I... I noticed, Martha, that you pointed out in your book, and I just absolutely loved it in the beginning, where you talked about um, that um, the vast majority of psychiatrists and psychologists, educators and parents and others believe at their core that ADHD is truly a disorder and that you point out the ideas they have are well substantiated by years of practice and documentation. The longer the ideas exist, the more valid they appear. And in the beginning of our chapter on questioning the validity of ADHD, we have a quote by G.K. Chesterton that says, "Fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions." And I, I <laughs> and I think what that what that said to us, I know, was and and we've actually done a couple of episodes on this on, on our radio show with uh, Dr. Thurber and Sheehan and um, some other. Uh, episodes that we talked about, the validity of ADHD and the diagnostic manual, and that is looking at the confirmatory studies. In other words, it's not science that says this is real. It's that we have said it's real, and then that's our confirmation, sort of a vicious circle kind of thing. So um, let me get to my question here. With the upcoming DSM proposed changes, um, I know that you sought out Doctor Francis specifically because of your concern about the DSM and how it traps our, our kids and um can you share exactly um you know what led you to to want him to write this forward and exactly what he feels about some of these upcoming changes.
0: Yes. It was an aha moment for me when I read his paper called It's Not Too Late to Save Normal. <laughs> and I thought, Wow, okay, this guy gets it. And he was the chair of the task force that created the book that's doing all of this and he's the one that's championing this effort to say, Wait a minute, we're going way too far. Now his point of view is that we didn't intend to do this. We were we were trying to be inclusive. We wanted to make sure that everyone who needs some kind of help that, that, you know, really could use something will be able to be diagnosed, therefore they'll receive whatever kind of special services they need. And so it was a, a really beautiful thought and sentiment that turned quite the other way. He's concerned, as I am, that the changes that they're making in the DSM-5 are going to make it even easier to diagnose people with a mental disorder who are normal. So a couple of the changes, um, they have decided that it used to be that they had to notice the the behavioral symptoms by age 7. They're raising that to age 12. And then another thing is they've rewritten all of those behavioral symptoms that are going to be used to diagnose so that adults can be diagnosed. It's no accident. When you look at it, it's like they're absolutely going to be able to pull a huge number of adults in and confirm that they have a mental disorder. So he and I agree completely on that point. Where we differ is that he still believes that, that there there is a disorder that ADHD mm-hmm. is a disorder and mm-hmm. that it's seriously overdiagnosed. I don't believe that it's a disorder at all.
1: Right. And I believe we, and that it's intensity that's been misunderstood. Mhm. That's right. Well, and one and another piece to that that You know, we covered in our first book, the ADHD Autism Connection, which led us to finding Temple Grandin, and she has become so involved in this issue, too. She's really, really upset about some of these changes in DSM, and especially um, as we're all talking, I know she would share with us the part about putting the disorder before the the talents and abilities, because she believes... she herself would like to be recognized as a person who is a doctor of animal science first and a person with autism second and Of course, she's highly upset about using um over medicating preschoolers and um using high levels of antipsychotics when we have little understanding of the cause and effect and when when we look at that and as we've talked about, and I know you share with us that um you know. We look at, to what Dr. Francis is saying, and we'd have to agree with you that ADHD is not real, especially when we point out, and we have done so for over 12 years, so many of the things being identified as ADHD have been explained and explained very um, effectively in autism. And by way of an example, we had Dr. Lorna Wingon, who is the pioneer uh, with Dr. Judith Gould in autism, and they talk about the executive functions and how that has always been a core part of autism. And when we look at the new changes, some of the new suggestions are to make ADHD um, not a disorder of inattention or hyperactivity, impulsivity, but to make ADHD an executive function disorder, then we say there's absolutely no way you can do that when these things are already identified as part of another disorder and identified in a way where they're not touted as behavioral issues or even worse as knowing what to do but choosing not to do it.
2: Well, also, ladies, when you think about it, um, earlier, Martha mentioned on Dr. Amon's web, website that ADHD is typically diagnosed with three, up to three or more disorders. And statistically, we found that this, this diagnosis can carry up to 100% comorbidity, which means it's always diagnosed with something else. In fact, I'm sure. Martha, you found that they screen for oppositional defiant disorder even as they're screening for ADHD or ADD. So the likelihood that immediately it's going to be diagnosed with another disorder is is there. Um, how can you say you have a discrete set of symptoms that can be called a disorder if those symptoms belong to so many other things? Um, I think that that. That's what we need to make clear too, that when we're saying that ADHD doesn't exist, we're not saying that the symptoms don't exist. But calling this a disorder and treating it as such is where we're going seriously wrong. Well and if, if I, I may I couldn't jump in agree that.
0: with you. I couldn't agree with you more on that, that those symptoms do exist and that they for problems for people. And so the ADHD yes. diagnosis, all of the things they've identified, those can be real problems along with yes. the other disorders that are, that are often diagnosed as comorbid with ADHD. Yeah, I'm not denying that there are challenges here. I think, though, the way that we look at it is very important. And when we divide it up into these separate little things,
2: mm-hmm.
0: we're missing the big picture.
2: Well, as a coach, um, I'm just curious um, because these do pose problems and challenges. What are some of the uh, ways that you encourage your clients to cultivate their intensities or to uh, live a better life, if you will?
0: Well, there's I have kind of a three-step process, although it's not like we go through one, two, and then three. But there are three parts to being able to improve the quality of life, and I mean drastically improve the quality of life. So the the first one is really understanding intensity. And anyone who's studied Dabrowski is already there. They've got all of the basics there. He identified all of these things, but in relationship with gifted and creative people, not looking at them as disordered. Um, in fact, he, he wrote a paper called Psychoneurosis is, is Not an Illness. <laughs> but the, these five intensities, and they're sensual intensity, which is a difference in the way we take in information through our senses. Psychomotor intensity, which is often um, looked at as hyperactivity, although it, it occurs in different ways. Intellectual intensity,
2: creative
0: intensity—he calls imaginational intensity, intensity or uh, superstimulatability—is actually his word. And then emotional intensity. So he has looked at all of these things in in great detail, and it turns out that in each one of these there are tremendous gifts to be had. And that's, I think, the the saddest thing about looking at each one of these people as being disordered, is that we miss the opportunity to develop these gifts. So the three things that I do is, is I work with people on really understanding intensities, so understanding them on a general level and then understanding how they apply to that individual person. And then there's the support component component. I provide support for people that I'm coaching, but I don't believe that coaching should go on forever. And so one of the things that we work on is finding a support system because once you're intense, you're always intense. This is not something that children grow out of as they get older. This is this is a type of person, a very very natural normal type of person that occurs in 15 to 20% of of all humans. And when you have these kinds of intensities, you need to have support from other people. You can't feel alone in the world. And but then the last thing is taking some kind of action. Um, there are practices. I have practices identified in my book that are some pretty good general practices to help people to start developing each one of these intensities. Um, and then when I'm working with them through coaching, we'll design a practice that works more specifically for them. Again, these people are very um, complex, and the more personalized anything can be, the better. But we've found that that through each one of these intensities, we're able to develop them to a point where there are some gifts that come out, and they're pretty predictable gifts out of each one of the intensities. If we have another couple of minutes, I'd love to go through them.
1: Sure, sure. Go ahead.
0: Okay. All right. So with the sensual intensity, this is a difference in the way that we take information in. It's not that our our nerves are any different than anyone else, but it comes in in more detail and stronger. And the gift that's to be found in that is intuition. With psychomotor intensity, we're able to to harness, the energy, we have a really high natural energy level. So that can provide the gift of drive for us. With intellectual intensity, because our thoughts work in a different, more like a networked pattern, we're able to synthesize new thoughts, learn subject A, learn subject B, and because we embody those subjects, we're able to synthesize new thoughts out of that. The creative intensity allows us to get in touch with true inspiration and have inspired creation. And then the emotional intensity is, of course, my favorite, and that carries with it the gift of passion. Those are are just a few of the just amazing gifts that are available. If we really understand this underlying condition and really nurture it,
1: You know, I'd like to comment on the last one when you Mm -hmm. talked about the gift of passion and our emotional intensity. And often in the gifted world, it's referred to as the social, emotional needs of our gifted. And, you know, often, even in the ADHD world, these kids are known for their just tenacity, their persistence, they don't give up. And you've just taken that and put such a positive spin on it and and that's exactly the view that we need to take when we look at these characteristics. I thank you for helping to bring that out.
0: You're very welcome. It is truly my pleasure.
1: Well, we are through um,
0: this with my children and uh and we've been down this path and as we got to the point of understanding the gifts in each one of these things, they say, you know, there's no way you could ever take that ADHD
1: label away from me. I love it. It's mine.
0: Uh-huh. And I try to tell them, no, you're intense. And they say, no, this is mine.
1: <laughs> right, right. And it and it really does boil down to not what we call it, but what it is and what we do with it that really counts. That's the important message that I think we share, and of course, it's you know it's why we ended up feeling like the real um, the real headline is that our kids are bright, not broken, and um, you've done a wonderful job of helping us understand how to bring out that brightness. And we uh, we certainly will be recommending your materials and, and your new book. Of course, we're just um, really excited for you that your book is brand new. In case our listeners don't know that, just released this week, I believe. Is that right?
0: That's right, on September 1st.
1: Wonderful. Well, tell us where they can find you, where they can find your book, um, how they can stay in touch with you. Okay.
0: Um, you can find my website at theaddmyth.com or intensitycoaching.com, and there are links on there to be able to order the book. It's available in uh, at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I'm sure other bookstores around. So that should be readily available. If not, just ask for it. And
1: is and, your book available um, as is it an e book yet? Have they um is it available as both a paperback and an e book?
0: Yes, it is, as of September first. Yes. They wonderful. finally they did put out the, the ebook version. They were holding back on that. They had a few of the printed copies available, but now the entire thing is available.
1: That's wonderful. Well, we are so excited to have had you as our guest and um I'm sure Martha if we um, we have another episode maybe where we get in deep about ADHD and the DSM, we would love <laughs> to include you on our panel.
0: I would love that. Thank you so much. It's so fun to have found kindred spirits.
2: <laughs> it's been great, Martha. I've enjoyed it.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you.
2: You're very welcome
1: and you all have a wonderful evening and we will um continue to talk about the myth of ADD and let everyone know about it thank you for being on tonight martha my pleasure good night, good night. Good night.